You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live and also co-author of the Early 202 newsletter. Thanks so much for joining us today. We are speaking with the Senate's number two Democrat, Senator Richard Durbin of Illinois. Senator Durbin, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you, Leanne. Uh, it has been a big week for me for you. You just got back from the NATO conference, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first, I want to start with uh, a very timely, hot topic, and that is Supreme Court ethics. Uh, you have announced that you will take up legislation next week as chair of the Judiciary Committee in your committee that would require the Supreme Court to adopt an ethics uh, plan. So. First of all, what sort of ethics do you think that the Supreme Court should adopt? Well, the bottom line is this. They should adopt the same code of ethics as every other federal judge in America. Those nine members of the Supreme Court are being treated differently. In fact, they're being exempt from uh, requirements that face members of Congress and other federal judges. And the disclosures that come out recently, lavish gifts, uh, and circumstances that are hard to explain involving these justices really compel us to do something for the sake of the court. My initial reaction was to turn to the chief justice and say, please move on this now. I approached him with this subject for the first time 11 years ago. He said he wasn't going to do anything. I thought with these latest disclosures, he might change his mind. So I reached out to him in, in writing and said, will you appear before our committee or uh, work toward uh, the goal of coming up with a standard. Uh, he's basically refused. He said, uh, whatever the rules and laws are now, that's all that we need. But I think most Americans would disagree. And of course, this latest push comes after you mentioned a spate of new reports about uh, trips, gifts um, from some of the justices, uh, including Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. Uh, but Republicans say that uh, it is not Congress's job to dictate how the Supreme Court operates. Is this legislative overreach? No, it's not. And let me tell you, I think our role in this situation, Congress's role in this situation, is very clear. Uh, we are not trying to influence the decision-making on any case. That is clearly the responsibility and the constitutional right of the Supreme Court under uh Constitution is written. But in terms of the administration of the Supreme Court, uh, Congress has responsibilities that include something as basic as choosing the number of justices. But you have to go back to 1869. We decided there would be nine Supreme, Supreme Court justices done by statute. Uh, that number is uh, held for so many years, but it was a congressional decision. When it comes to funding the Supreme Court or the basic rules of conduct, we've we had that authority over history, and I think we still do. Let me also add that last year we had a bipartisan bill by Senators Cornyn and Coons related to stock ownership and decisions by federal courts uh, involving uh, defendants or plaintiffs who uh, represented the, the stock ownership. Judges were asked to recuse themselves from cases where there are conflicts of interest. It was passed on a bipartisan basis in the Congress. It was sent to the Supreme Court and all the other federal courts, and they abided by it. They said, we're going to live by that standard. 
So it is not a radical idea that Congress comes up with an ethical standard and the court follows it. Um, why, you know, Justice Roberts has said that that the court is adept at policing itself, that it doesn't need to adopt additional ethics rules. Um, how does that how does that differ, I guess? There's ethics rules, like you said, in the lower courts. There's ethics rules for senators as well and for elected officials. How did it become that the Supreme Court has been able to get around any sort of concrete plan? Well, it's a good question. No one has challenged them before, and that's what we're doing next week in the Senate Judiciary Committee. We're going to establish a code of ethics and requirements for uh, disclosure uh, of gifts and the like, as well as a standard for recusal in cases. Uh, and we're going to propose that as the law and standard to, uh, that the Supreme Court must follow. It hasn't been done before. It needs to be done now. It's hard for me to understand why Chief Justice, how T Chief Justice Roberts can rationalize the disclosures that have come out before the public. I mean, when Justice Alito, for example, says, I don't have to report a trip on a private jet to a fishing vacation because the seat on the plane that I was going to, that I occupied would have been vacant if I didn't sit in. Think about the logic behind that. I mean, does he have a right to first class seats uh, uh, any time he wishes or to uh, meals and restaurants if the food is not going to be used? I mean, that, that is something that is not defensible and it indicates the position many justices, or at least some justices, have taken. And I've mentioned Clarence Thomas and Justice Alito, who are two of the subjects of these, uh, you know, these reports of accepting gifts and travel. But also this week, the Associated Press reported that uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor um, has made more than $3 million on selling her books and that there's been a lot of pressure on universities and institutions to purchase her books when she goes to speak at them. Would that be an ethics violation? Could be. Uh, I'm not going to prejudge it until the facts are known uh, in complete uh, form. Uh, but I will tell you, the rules and proposals we're making for a code of ethics and disclosure will apply to every single Supreme Court justice, whether they were appointed by a Democratic president or a Republican president makes no difference when it comes to ethics. And you expanded your investigation yesterday, you and Senator Whitehouse, uh, your Democratic colleague, sent letters to uh, to Leonard uh, Leo, to uh, Paul Singer and another billionaire about uh, the trips with Justice Alito. Um, this is before you had sent a letter to Harlan Crow, who is a close friend of Clarence Thomas for those that sort of that relationship and the the trips that he has received, Harlan Crow did not respond to you. What happens if if Leonard Leo, if Paul Singer does not respond to you? Well, in fairness to Harlan Crow, whom I don't know personally, his attorney has been in touch with us, and we are negotiating. We're a long way from any agreement for disclosure, but there was an effort that was made there in that situation. The other inquiries are relatively new, and I uh, hope that we receive responses from these very wealthy individuals as to uh, the questions that we've sent to them. Uh, but of course, there is, as I said, everything is on the table. 
There is an option if they fail to cooperate on a voluntary basis to issue a subpoena from the Judiciary Committee. And do you plan to send inquiries to the colleges or the institutions that Sonia Sotomayor's staff asked to purchase a large sum of her books during her press tours, during her book tours? Leanne, everything is on the table, regardless of uh, the justice involved in it. We want to treat them all fairly, give them an opportunity to explain the situation. Some have already done it. Justice Alito preempted the disclosure of uh, the charges against him with his own personal column, I believe, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so some justices are stepping up uh, and telling their side of the story. Uh, I wasn't particularly impressed with uh, Justice Alito's side of the story, but he can do that, and each one of them can do it as well. Uh, we reserve the right to continue the investigation. Uh, and if more information is needed, we're not ruling out anything. Uh, I want to ask you about some news that my colleagues and I broke this morning in our newsletter, the early 202, about um, today in the Senate Appropriations Committee, Senator Chris Van Hollen, your Democratic colleague from Maryland, plans to bring up an amendment that would tie, that would withhold some Supreme Court funding until Chief Justice John Roberts submits an ethics plan. Uh, would you, do you back, you are on that committee, um, the Appropriations Committee, so will you support that effort today? Uh, I have seen disclosures this morning as well that Chris Van Hollen has said he's not going to go forward with that uh, effort mm -hmm. as long as the Senate Judiciary Committee is considering the ethics issue in the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I think that's the latest, and I'm uh, happy to see that. I hope that we can work together with Chris on the other matter, uh, if necessary, in the future. But for now, we have a plan, and I, I hope it gives us a chance to execute. Great. And so Senator Van Hollen is not going to move forward with that as far as you're concerned. Is that going to be discussed in appropriations at the very least? I don't know the answer to that, and I'm just uh, really relaying to you what I read this morning was his latest decision. I hope I haven't misstated it, but it was reported this morning. Okay, great. And then I have a question from a viewer on the Supreme Court, Vicki Slavin from Massachusetts. She asks, how likely is it that the Supreme Court will adopt ethics rules, either through your bill or a statement of their own? I think it's going to happen. And I, I was hoping it would be done by the court uh, for the sake of the court. And Chief Justice Roberts is, of course, uh, it is his court history. It will go down as the Roberts Court. And what we have now, sadly, is a report that the Supreme Court is at the lowest ebb in terms of public opinion, their honesty and integrity. Listen, the Supreme Court doesn't own an army. and It doesn't have an army of political consultants and communications experts. It has its reputation, and the reputation has to be preserved. I thought Chief Justice Roberts would have responded by now, but I hope he does still. Uh, he has the authority today, tomorrow, or any day he chooses to solve this problem, to establish a code of ethics that is responsible and reflects what other branches of government uh, follow, and to establish standards of disclosure so that every single justice knows they will have to answer for their conduct to the public. All public officials and public servants who do their jobs in good faith do that already. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, he has been a big defender of the court. Of course, he played a huge role 
in uh, confirming uh, three of the justices, conservative justices that are currently on the court. This week, he also wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post where he defends the court again, but he also pushes back on what he says is a liberal push that there is a, a conservative supermajority on the court. He instead says there's, quote, a politically unpredictable center. Is he right? No, uh, and I think the spate of decisions that we've seen recently and over the last year, starting with the Dobbs decision and others, confirm uh, our suspicions. Uh, and just look at the facts. And I think Mitch, you would have to acknowledge what I'm about to say is a, is a fact. When Donald Trump puts together a list of potential Supreme Court appointments, having been cleared by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, it's pretty clear that this is a joint effort by very conservative groups, special interests, dark money groups, and the uh, Republican Party as to what uh, will be the future of the court, at least what is likely to be the future of the court. To argue that this is an objective undertaking is to ignore the obvious. The Federalist Society was the secret handshake of every federal nominee that came to us during the Trump administration. Uh, I asked that question over and over again and got preposterous answers. I would ask judicial nominees, why did you join the Federalist Society? Oh, did I, was I a member of the Federalist Society? Oh, I used to go to lunch there. It was very interesting to meet with some other lawyers and chat over lunch. That's it? Yes, that was it, just a coincidence. Over and over again, coincidence hell. It was a uh, plot that was pretty clear from the start. Pretty clear any judicial nominees in the hopes that they would follow the conservative line when they're on the court. The Supreme Court is not above that same conduct. Conservatives have been um, mobilizing around the issue of the court for decades, essentially since Roe v. Wade was passed uh, more than 50 years ago now, or decided, I should say. And has there been a shift? Is there something more that Democrats, that liberals need to do? Does this need to become more of a voting issue for Democrats? Well, I'm, I'm afraid to say that uh, what the Republicans have done through the Federalist Society and Leonard Leo is to politicize this process to an incredible pl uh, point. I mean, when you look back in history and, and look at the votes that confirm uh, Anton Scalia or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you see uh, real bipartisanship. But that has started to disappear when it comes to the selection of nominees for the courts. Uh, too often, it's just a partisan selection process. I see that every day in the committee. There are exceptions. Uh, I won't name names for fear of getting them in trouble with their own parties. Uh, but some on the other side have been bipartisan in their selection process. But by and large, it is a much more partisan process. Uh, speaking of that, uh, there is this long-standing Senate tradition called blue slips. And I'm just going to explain it a little bit to our audience uh, before I actually get to the question. And what blue slips are, it is a tradition where senators from the state of the judicial nominee, they send in a blue slip, essentially giving a nod of approval that this nominee can move forward, that there are no major objections. Senator Durbin, you have received a lot of pressure from the left to get rid of this blue slip tradition, especially as a lot of nominations are coming up and have come up in conservative red from conservative red states. 
And also, most recently, you met with the Congressional Black Caucus last week. They sent you a letter, I believe it was this week, asking you to get rid of blue slips, saying that it is a vestige of the Jim Crow era, an attempt to uh, restrict black judges from being confirmed or even nominated or getting a hearing. What is your stance on blue slips at this point? Are you going to keep this tradition? I support the blue slip process, but I've said to the Republicans uh, that unless they engage in this process in good faith, uh, I'm not going to be held to that standard. Uh, what it boils down to is this, you're right. In history, the blue slip process has been used for nefarious purposes, from my point of view, for racial purposes, by those who wanted to exclude certain Democratic appointments in states, southern states usually, of uh, individuals who would be open to changes when it came to uh, race considerations. Uh, but there have also been uses of the blue slip for uh, totally different purposes. Uh, it really means that an individual senator has the right to decide whether or not someone is going to get a lifetime appointment to the federal judiciary in their state. Uh, I will tell you as an example, during the Trump administration, uh, what I did was to engage with the White House directly in uh, agreeing to a bipartisan list of nominees who we'd suggest to the Judiciary Committee. So I turned in blue slips for Trump nominees. In return, the uh, Trump uh, White House uh, put forward names of nominees that I suggested. So there was kind of a give and take on a bipartisan basis, and I think it worked fairly. During the Trump years, 121 blue slips were set in by Democratic senators for nominees that came before the Judiciary Committee. So it was very bipartisan in that regard. However, during that same period of time, the Trump years, some Democratic senators used the blue slip to keep federal judicial slots vacant uh, until in the hopes that there'd be a Democratic president. Some of those have been filled now. So I think it can be misused. I, I've said I'll never uh, stand by using the blue slip uh, for purposes of discrimination based on race or gender or sexual orientation. But uh, I support the blue slip as long as it's done on a bipartisan basis. Now I want to switch to NATO and foreign policy. You just returned from Lithuania uh, from the NATO summit. Um, what was, just first, very broadly, what was your reaction? What did you learn there that you didn't know before? There were six of us, bipartisan delegation, three Democrats, three Republicans. Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, led our uh, bipartisan visit. It, it meant a lot to me personally. My mother was born in Lithuania. I saw Lithuania during Soviet times, the sad state of affairs. And to think now that it was a gathering place for the freedom-loving uh, countries from the Western world uh, really was a tribute to how far that country, that little country has come because of their determination to be free. But what happened at that conference was significant. It was the worst week so far for Vladimir Putin because the NATO alliance grew in strength and number and determination to defeat him in Ukraine. And secondly, we had other countries come from around the world. The Republic of South Korea, its president, we met with him, as well as the prime minister of Australia, we met with them as well. So it was a gathering of freedom-inspired leaders to make it clear to Putin that this conduct in Ukraine is absolutely unacceptable. And I want to give credit where it's due, and, and he's been uh, very shy and humble on this category, uh, and that's Joe Biden. 
The fact of the matter is, NATO alliance was on the rocks when he became president. The member nations really seriously asked him, what is the future of NATO? We've listened to Donald Trump and we don't know that it has a future. And, and this president, Joe Biden, said, I believe in NATO. I'm going to make it stronger. And with Ukraine, he has really proven that point. NATO is stronger than it's ever been in history. And thank goodness it is. It is averting uh, disasters like uh, Ukraine by its very existence and commitment to stand together for freedom. Do you, uh, do you support the fact that Ukraine should not become a member of NATO until after the war is over? I think that that's fundamental. It's always been the case in the NATO alliance for obvious reasons. Article 5 of the NATO agreement basically says if you attack any member nation of NATO alliance, all the other nations will respond uh, to defend that country. It's only been invoked one time in history. And that, of course, was after 9-11 when the other NATO allies said if there's an attack on the United States, it's an attack on Great Britain and all the other members of the NATO alliance. So I would say to Mr. Zelensky, I'm on your side, friend, co-chair of the Ukrainian caucus here in the Senate. I'm dedicated to your victory and the expulsion of Putin once and for all. But the notion that we would bring into the NATO alliance a, a nation at war is almost an automatic requirement for the United States to provide troops in that conflict. The president has never asked for that. Zelensky's never asked for this, but it's certainly an, an, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an issue that has been unresolved uh, and shouldn't be tested by Zelensky. Let's beat Putin fair and square, evict him from your country, and then, of course, I totally support Ukraine's membership in NATO. Do you support President Biden's decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine? You know, I struggle with that, to be very honest with you. Historically, I've had my questions about it, but Ukraine asked for this munition uh, because they're running out of artillery shells. The Russians obviously have much greater resources, larger population, and they've been throwing the kitchen sink at these poor people in Ukraine for months and months. And as the Ukrainian uh, army is reaching a shortage in those munitions, they asked for this new cluster munition, which can have up to 80 bomblets uh, included inside each uh, charge uh, that can be dispersed, particularly in the trenches where these Russian troops are hiding. They asked for it. The president, after consideration, said, I'm going to give it to them. And uh, 10,000 of those munitions were released to the Ukrainians, at least that number. Uh, so far. I think it is a practical reality uh, that the Ukrainians falling short of ammunition need that help. Senator, in your discussions in Lithuania at the NATO conference, was there anything that Ukraine asked for that they had not asked for before? Is there something new that they need? And also, did you get a better sense of when more defense funding for Ukraine uh, will be requested? Uh, on both counts, I, I would say that there's no specifics that we were given or discussed. Uh, there was no new level of munitions or equipment or ammunition beyond the cluster munitions that was even mentioned. And secondly, decision is to a supplemental uh, request in the United States did not come up. Uh, but the general commitment has been made by freedom-loving nations around the world and members of the NATO alliance that we're going to stand by Ukraine until the moment of victory. That victory will be defined by the Ukrainian people, and I think we are moving toward it now. Senator, we are completely out of time. I really appreciate you spending 25 minutes with us this morning. I know you're extremely busy. Thank you so much. Thanks, Leanne. Thanks for listening. 
For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.